Hello, and welcome to Be the Serpent, a podcast of extremely deep literary merit, with your classy and sophisticated hosts, Alexandra Rowland, Freya Mask, and Jennifer Mace. On today's episode, we're discussing Trail of Lightning by Rebecca Roanhorse, the fanfic Mebius by Aurora Nova, and Mad Max Fury Road. Hello and welcome to episode 84, not with a bang. I'm Alex and I am Super Hurricanes. I'm Freya and I am Bushfires. Surprising no one. As is traditional for this podcast, I am Macy and I am Volcanoes. We are three red-headed fantasy authors. And today we're kind of following up on episode three from way back in the dawn of time oh, for this who podcast. Who can remember that long? I know. Who can remember that long? Apparently, you were once so we... small and young and like bushy tailed. Yeah, right. Yeah, bushy tailed back and in covered the, the in early... bushfires. Covered yes. in bushfires, in fact, and with, that and was... with inferior audio quality. Inferior, inferior audio everything. quality. But that was indeed the episode where Freya ranted about bushfires for so long that I had to get yes, really good at like. <laughs> <editing>. <laughs> really good at editing really fast so I could cut it down from like five minutes to two minutes. Darling Uh, listeners, they weren't even euphemistic. They weren't. That was before we were using video as well, so Freya Mm. couldn't even see us dying of of agony. We couldn't make faces at Freya's long, long monologues. Anyway. (laughs) Yes, and now now we solicit them, but mostly about medical topics and priapisms. We do. (laughs) (laughs) How did we get here? It's it's a weird I found day, my scissors listeners. from that episode. Freya is how okay. we got there, so I was thinking okay. of it. Well, Thank we're you. pretty, we're all pretty manic, apparently. So, uh... episode three was about the apocalypse itself, and today we're talking about post-apocalypse and like what happens afterwards and how do mm. we rebuild societies and so forth. And but specifically, climate apocalypses. Specifically, climate apocalypses. Yes. Thank you, Macy. We're talking. About my favorite genre, my favorite of all genres, Alex. Can you guess what my favorite genre is? What is that? Cli-fi. Okay. (laughs) Before... Also, not a euphemism. Before we go any further, apparently I am the person holding the leashes today. Macy was complaining before this podcast that she had written all of the dot points and she was like, I'm going to need both of you to like get your energy up because Freya and I were sort of blah. But here we are and I'm the one holding the leashes and trying to drag no, these two toddlers through the I was just warning you in advance, Alex. I'd spent all of my sensible points and they'd run out. Oh, I see. That's what it was. Anyway, before we get into any more <laughs> fucking nonsense, dear listeners, what are we reading, fellow serpents? Freya's been reading some nonsense. Oh, yes, nonsense indeed. So I am continuing my slow meander through Dorothy Dunnett's Niccolo series, which is an eight-book series, of which every book is a 600 to 800-page monster. Yes, Macy, did you have a question? I object strenuously to your describing a fortnight in which you read two Dunnett books as slow and fucking meandering. Yeah. Freya. Yeah. Yeah, no, uh, I mean that my process through the series is meandery because I can't read more than a couple of them at once. Unlike with the Lyman books where I read one a year and then read the last three in a fever dream over mm. about two weeks. This time I am being a little bit more measured with doling out the Niccolo books. So I have read two in a row and I'll now probably not read another one for at least six months. 
because okay. although they are wonderful historical novels, she very much commits to making horrible things happen to her characters physically, emotionally, mm. on all axes, and I think I need a little bit of a break from that. Mm. So my chosen break from the Niccolo bullshit was the new Talia Hibbert romance novel, Act Your Age, Eve Brown. This is the third in her Brown Sisters series. And this one is about a wonderful sunshine girl who semi-accidentally crashes a job interview to become a (laughs) chef for a bed and breakfast owned by a very cranky, uptight man and gets the job mostly because she also accidentally runs him over with her car and then he can't use his arm. So he really needs some help and she guiltily agrees to help and they fall in love. And it really made me want to go to a bed and breakfast more than anything else. (laughs) I mean, you generally want to go to, like Freya just kind of exists in a perpetual state of wanting to go to a bed bed and breakfast breakfast person. They are very much part of my aesthetic. I I feel like there's Freya, on the one hand there's bed and breakfast and on the other hand there's vineyards. Mm, Yes, most of my best holidays have been going to winery regions and staying at (laughs) B&Bs. Perfect, perfection. Freya only has two settings. Anyway, this was a lovely novel, really hot, some really good sex scenes, including some good use of sex toys, which I really like to see in romance novels. And it also has um, autistic rep for both of the main characters, but they're coming at it from quite different directions. And there's a lot of discussion about how it can manifest in adults and Mm. people who are aware of their diagnosis and how people can become Mm. aware. And I found it really, um, really good, really thoughtful. Talia Hibbert as own voices for autistic rap and of course I just really love her romance writing style so thoroughly recommend that one and then my reading brain unsurprisingly was a little bit tired so I have been re-watching Parks and Recreation and also watching quite a lot of figure skating because the world figure skating championships are on at the moment nice knife shoe adventures ice Very shoe good. adventures yay yay uh, meanwhile, I read at least one book in the past fortnight, and I read Francis Harding's A Face Like Glass, because I am in the middle of beginning to write a creepy, gothic, Victorian-ish thing, yes. and having previously read Cuckoo Song and The Lie Tree, expected to find creepy Victorian shit in my Francis Harding. Instead, I found infinite caves and rather a lot of cheese making Mm. and some very odd magic and it was delightful but not at all (laughs) not at all helpful in the victorian gothic Mm. region really i must say yes and i also accidentally tripped and fell so i've been so sidebar macy will sidetrack us momentarily i really miss delicious Okay. Do you guys miss Delicious? Not nearly as much as you do, probably. Yes, I didn't use it that much. I used to use the popular bookmarks section to basically randomize my fic reading, and I would read whatever lots of people were bookmarking in any fandom (laughs) that week. Mm -hmm. That explains a lot. (laughs) Doesn't it, though? Doesn't it? (laughs) It does. Um, (laughs) Listen, shut up. Um, These days, all that I have is the pinboard fandom front page, Mm. which A, not many people use, so a popular bookmark might have four people bookmarking it, and B, is mostly full of people bookmarking Twitter threads about the ship that's currently stuck in the Suez Canal. Um, Yes. Yes. (laughs) Which is a different kind of shipping to what I'm looking for. Apparently people are writing, like, nodding fanfic about the ship in the canal. At least four linked on Twitter. I saw Foz Meadows tweet about that last night, and I was like, I'm immediately logging off. Goodbye. (laughs) Anyway, darling 
listeners, Macy has a reason for talking about this nonsense in the What Have We Read This Week section, which is as follows. (laughs) On Tuesday night, I went on Pinboard and clicked on the the top link that actually went to AO3 and discovered Love in Fire and Blood by Sysa which is a 360,000 word arranged marriage Wang Zhan AU. Uh, we respect you, Macy. We do respect you. And I read it in a day and a half. Mm-hmm. We respect you so much. <laughs> and it's very good. You guys, it's very good. What, you should, should, should consider it. That's, I do love arranged marriages. You have to understand, Cesar wrote this between October and March. That is a lot. Oof. That is a lot. We that, respect we do so respect. many things. We respect that, that's so many that things. Is four, that's four novels worth of words. Yeah. Yes! novels three novels Freya look I'm currently writing a romance novel and it's meant to end up at 90,000 so I'm trying to retrain my brain to assume that 90 is a more appropriate number than 170 I can barely sneeze in 90,000 words I meanwhile have become literally the most boring person in the world somehow I transformed from like your normal garden variety millennial into something resembling an adult grown-up which I hate um I had I spent my week having like talks with my financial advisor and like watching YouTube videos about stocks and investing and I darling listeners there was this marvelous moment when Alex tried to talk maths to me and I ran away. <laughs> yeah. Because it was stocks. It's stocks, right. And like, th- that's the thing is like, I have literally nobody I can talk to about this because like, I hear the words come out of my mouth. Can I tell you something about the stock market that's really interesting? And I want to kill myself and die. Just like, God. Anyway, um, so less on a less boring note, though, I did also watch a presentation by Raph Koster at GDC Next, uh, which was a speech that he wrote slash a seminar slash class that he taught, and it was titled Practical Creativity. Uh, and he is a, a game maker. He makes video games, uh, mm-hmm. as I understand. And he was talking about like what it takes to break down creativity into its building blocks and so Hmm. that you're not waiting on your muse you're like accessing it more on purpose uh and he broke down like what a lot of like the mechanics of games actually are and uh it was super super fascinating it was a recommendation to me by uh ej lomax uh because she Mm. uh makes Mm -hmm. games and she knows that i am working on a game system sort of right now um, so highly recommend that. It's very good and much more interesting than stocks. stocks. I apologize for that, dear listeners. I apologize I mean, for even saying time, the word. I feel like, listeners, put a pin in this now because give yeah. it three years and there will be an Alex Rowland fantasy novel, which is about the fantasy stock market. Absolute yes. guarantee. <laughs> I, I already have the tagline for it. It's money is fake, but kissing is real. Look for it in oh like god. ten years. <laughs> oh god! Will it? Can it also involve the the fucking evergreen ship? I, because stopping stopping global trade has an impact on the stonk market. You're absolutely right. It That's does. True. I will put that in the mental hopper and we'll come back to it. <laughs> hey, it will um, be like this obscurely 2021 book in 2025. Yeah. Yeah. There we go. Gosh. Meanwhile, Alex has some exciting news for us, dear listeners. We, well, we sort of collectively have exciting news for the dear listeners. Um, so this is in our future, but now in your past, dear listeners, it's one of those fucky podcast timeline time shenanigans. Uh, 
If you have been on Twitter or have been around, you may have seen announced probably last week, probably, uh, that uh, we have been nominated for a Hugo Award for Best Fan Cast. This is the third year in a row, which is incredible and wild to us. Holy shit. Uh <laughs> Thank you so much, I think, is yes. the only thing that we can yes. say about this. We are Thank thrilled and delighted. For you and by you, so... Yes. Yes. Um, and, like, it's just... Like, the last year has been really difficult and hard for a lot of people. And I think that it had... I'm Trigger warning for sincerity, oh, <laughs> Macy. Okay. Macy and I are just going <laughs> to carefully cover up. Take oh, out yes. your headphones. It's Alex, been a really just difficult wave this when you're year. done. I will. I will. It's been a really difficult year for a lot of people, and it's just meant a lot to me to have this podcast in my life so that I have a way of like connecting with you wonderful people and reading good books and also reaching our dear listeners and being there for them in these difficult times. Okay, I'm I am now... remembering what week it is. Oh, you did keep your headphones in. I see. Well, I covered my ears, and then I remembered that my earbud is on the inside when I do that. <laughs> <laughs> and I was too ashamed to fix it. You, so you were pushing the sincerity further into your skull. I know, and I'm like, abort mission, abort mission, but it was too late. Amazing, amazing. Anyway, that's all shall I wanted to say. Yes, we let's shall. Move, let's have an episode. Let's have Freya. an episode, Freya. What was that? Okay, so my fellow serpents have developed a new way of saying my name, which I'm going to ignore. We've always been saying your I name respond that way. to it, then they will train them like cats to do it more. Who's Leia? We'll go back to Flaya. We'll go it's back fine. to Flaya. I do like Flaya. Flaya is probably what my roller derby name would be. I was about Amazing. to say, that's your roller derby Sold. name. Yeah. Anyway, relevance to the episode, I'm going to introduce our first tentpole for this week. Mm. And, that- and our first ever tentpole that has been tentpoled twice. No, it hasn't. Yes, it has. Mm. No, it has not. Sort of. No. We did it in the Hugo nomination episode. Oh, okay. That's fair. Ah, That's right. fair. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yes. So I was like, what are you talking yes. about? We've never done it this. It has been part of a tent with six tent poles, and now it mm. is getting a starring yeah. role as one of a three tent pole episode. And this is the novel Trail of Lightning by Rebecca Roanhorse. Yes. yes. Macy is making pleased sounds. So this is, I think I would describe it as urban fantasy in genre, uh, even though it is obviously also Mm post-apocalyptic. And this is a book starring Maggie, who is a young Navajo monster hunter, and she has destructive powers. And the book follows her as she makes deals with tricksters and buddies up with a hot healer who uh, dresses amazingly, I have to admit. I really liked everything that he wore. Very Mm -hmm. impressed. Uh, As they tried (laughs) to... Maggie was very unimpressed continually. Oh, yes. Which was half the fun. He's very much like lounging on the car, here are my hot sunglasses kind of person. I love him. (laughs) He's valid. He was very valid. Uh, So they're teaming up to take down a new kind of monster and to find a tool that might be able to be used to destroy the monster somehow. And it is set in an America after... The climate apocalypse in this case was basically a worldwide flood. And so large amounts of America have been destroyed and or are underwater. And after which magic has returned to the world. Yes. And that is the stage that is being set. So I really enjoyed this book. It was a really fun monster hunting road trip with bonus snarking and flirting and cool magic. And trickster gods. And Trickster Gods, which is Alex's entire jam. My entire jam. My whole brand is Trickster Gods. Absolutely. Yes. He's 
we stand a coyote, I guess, or, or we, do. we don't, because you don't want to stand a coyote, because he might notice you doing so, and that would be bad. Oh, God, I love, I loved coyote in this book. Oh my <laughs> God! Every time he talked, I was just like wheezing with laughter. I love him. Continue, Macy. Continue. <laughs> But yeah, I really liked this because it is all of that, but it also has a lot, a lot of underlying stuff that's saying things. Mm. And one of the things that this book is saying very clearly and repeatedly for multiple characters is it's nice that all y'all have had an apocalypse and are kind of het up about it, but this is at least our second rodeo mm. in the past 200 years. Yeah. So could you just sit back and let us deal with it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And like, as I was reading this, like I was thinking about... um. Shit, what is the uh, title of that? Uh, Small Changes Over Long Periods of Time by Cam Spara. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. Which, like, there's something so, so cool yeah. about taking this one trope and then looking at it from a perspective that hasn't gotten a lot of attention. And, like, the way the thing that happens in uh, Small Changes Over Long Periods of Time is that you get a trans person's perspective on mm. the transformation into a vampire right and right, right, right. like having a native american person's perspective on the climate apocalypse uh when their apocalypse happened like two three hundred years ago is like hitting a lot of parallels for me in interesting mm. ways when i was reading the wikipedia page this to remind myself of, of the plot a little i hit a mention of something that rebecca roanhorse had said which is that she was writing this set in the future starring Native American people as a way of almost deliberately uh, trying to battle the stereotype of Native people as being stuck in the past mm-hmm. and as being mm-hmm. a, a people who belong to the past. Right. And so you're right, right they, they, they had their apocalypse and now here's another apocalypse and here is them thriving in the future. Right. Yeah. Which I thought was very cool because it, it really does take this idea that the apocalypse is a shift and that reality has shifted. And this says, okay, it's not just humans who have had to adjust to the change that has happened. It said the shift was of such a magnitude that it has reawakened gods and mythic figures and magic that may have been dormant in people's clans and bloodlines for some time, and now it is needed again. Yeah. It's almost like this. And it's the beginning of the sixth age, wasn't it? Yeah, the sixth world. Yeah. Mm. And like the the worldwide flood also, like it's it's interesting that she and I think it's appropriate that she chose a flood as the the apocalypse of choice because like that turns up in mythology so much. Um all over the world there's cultures that have like this this myth of and then the world was destroyed in a flood. Uh Mm. and then reborn afterwards. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there's this sense that I think runs through a lot of stories about the end of the world is that there'll be the rise of a monster and then there'll be the mirrored rise of people who can fight it. So they're mm. saying, okay, so some monsters have reawakened, but the magic that is needed to destroy those monsters has awakened as well. And like you think about the legend of King Arthur, he's asleep, he'll be wakened when he is needed mm-hmm. by whatever crisis in the future. And even like some of the more whack revelation stuff about the rise of the antichrist you know like there's always this sense that there will be a rise of evil of some kind uh and you know humanity is being granted what it needs to fight that Mm -hmm. well it's almost the the star wars you know the light and the dark must balance yes thing Mm. right yeah it's definitely a trope that kind of recurs again and again um which i guess we'll get to a little bit in the balancing of the of the fanfic tentpole Mm. Mm -hmm. uh but yeah, I think that that idea of balance and that tension between the dark and the light is something that is a big part of Maggie's character journey. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of her inner turmoil is the fact that her powers are very destructive. 
So she right. has clan powers that allow her to be a monster hunter, but she has a lot of angst, I suppose, and tension in her relationships arising from the fact that they are very destructive powers, that her power is death. Yeah, one of her powers is the ability to basically see the the quickest, safest way to kill someone mm-hmm. or kill multiple yeah. someone or win a and, fight and, living and in then a, do it. And living in a world that has been destroyed, right. being yourself an agent of destruction is obviously something that you would have a lot of existential turmoil about. Whereas Kai, the other character, his powers are healing. Like he is much more of that kind of, you know, this is the kind of power that you need after the apocalypse to help heal the world. And I think part of the story is Maggie coming to terms with the fact that her destructive powers are part of that balance and that she is necessary as well. Right, that there's a sense of a protector. And one of the things that I did notice in this was, again, this um, motif that I think is pretty common in post-apocalyptic stories around how the people who pick up the reins of being law enforcement Mm -hmm. are typically those who shouldn't have that power. Right, so you have um, a kind of biased and violent sheriff type in this who was one of maggie's earlier enemies and i think that that's interesting um yeah it's like this we see that character type so much yeah Mm. it's it's this sort of power corrupts theme um not even that the ones who go looking for the quote-unquote authority of the law are typically the people who are in it just to exercise power Yeah, and And I think it's something that does pop up a lot in this genre because it says with the breakdown of society, it will create a vacuum into which this kind of person will willingly step and attempt to exert power in whatever way they can. And usually the heroes are the people who are not working within that system and not trying to exert power over other people, but they are the ones who are just trying to survive and help people. Mm -mm. And I did like the gender role in this that (laughs) Maggie is incredibly stabby and fighty and cranky and Kai (laughs) for all of his like snark and wonderful fashion is the the healing one like his clan powers are all to do with healing and regeneration yeah he's the he's the cleric in this adventuring party (laughs) he is he's like the he has persuasive stuff as well yeah persuasive charisma that I think was really interesting. No, mm. they're, they're really great characters. It's a really good book, and it reads fast. It does read it fast. Did, it did and, read very and it, fast. And it did I'm a surprised. really good job of introducing a lot, like a pretty big base of characters that has that really urban mm-hmm. fantasy feel that your main characters are sort of going from base to base to base, interacting yeah. with a supporting cast. But I thought uh, Rebecca Roanhorse did a really good job of creating that supporting cast as people who have their own shit going on. Yep. Obviously, yep. it is post it is after the apocalypse, we all have shit to do. Uh, and the relationships that Maggie has with all these people are, are sometimes fraught, sometimes complicated, sometimes they're based in bargains, sometimes based in affection. And the way that she interacted with these people and just showed a lot about community after the end of the world, which yes. I really liked. Yes. And how much did we love the terrible cat bookie lady? Terrible cat bookie was amazing. Yes. Yes. I love her. And um, the other thing also that I, I noticed... Uh, that Rebecca Roanhorse did really, really well was talking about the economy of this world uh, because they the, right because they have gone back to a, a barter system and a lot of authors I think just sort of say I will invent a new currency here we go um, and that's not really how an economy would work in in the post apocalyptic world like you would you would barter with what you have um, and it kind of opens up interesting ideas about what is value and what what both what is value and what is valued 
in this society. Mm. Uh, yeah, there's a really great early scene where Maggie is offered a small handful of things to trade. And one of them is a lump of uh, turquoise. And she's like, it's sure it's turquoise, but it doesn't have the white veins that people prize. So it's not going to be worth that much. And mm. it's just looking at that like uh, evaluation of what does value mean and what is more valuable specifically in this context. Mm -hmm. And the value is people want turquoise with interesting white veins through it that they can work into interesting things. Mm -hmm. They don't want a plain blue piece. Right. And so it's less valuable. Right, mm. right. And that's, it's not arbitrary, but it's almost arbitrary. Like there is that thing actually right. inherently more right. valuable in quotation marks about veined versus non-veined. It's just that that's the decision of what is currently being yeah. prized. Mm. And it also does some really interesting things to open up um, comments about character because like, uh, Maggie is offered a, a very valuable item, the uh, Two Grey Hills blanket. And mm -hmm. she, as part of this payment, and she turns it down. She says, I'll take everything except this thing. Uh, or I'll take, s she picks from the pile and doesn't take everything that she's offered, which shows that what the sort of person that she is in a really effective right. way that would not have echoed as strongly if she had been offered some money and handed part of it back. Right. But you ha I think and you have to do that when you're working with a character like this who has a lot of self-doubt mm -hmm. and, you know, some little seeds of self-hatred that come from the kind of yes. person she is. You can't be told in her narration right. that the ways in which she is a good person. You yes, because this is all it. within the first chapter or so. Well, they're very short chapters. So in the first 5,000 words or so, and she's just failed to save so spoilers for this the first this chapter again early in the book <laughs> yeah um she's just failed to save their little girl who she was hired to save from a monster she saved the little girl from becoming a monster mm -hmm. but she didn't save her life yeah. and so she thinks you know i don't i shouldn't take this blanket i didn't save the daughter and i don't know if she would have taken it even if she had but like you get that kind of bargaining in her head where she's almost thinking that she's not good enough that she didn't succeed she doesn't deserve it mm. Mm. Um, but also that it would be taking away an heirloom quality item from this family who've just lost a child. Yeah. Yes. And she yes. thinks about her worth in terms of utility. Which yes, is a very, very uh, post-apocalypse economy thing to do. Well, we should definitely talk about that in the context of the next one. Yes, then, please. Which is one of my favourite movies, uh, which is Mad Max Fury Road. Yay. Yay, and it's God, very Australian. <laughs> Macy's, favorite, so Macy's favorite genre of film is films that have Charlize Theron in them. <laughs> is that true? That's not not true. We have now tentpoled three. Charlize Theron kicks some ass, looks intense, and okay. like protects the some The old god Alex you picked, I will say. Did I? Yes. Okay. <laughs> But you were on board yes. for it because she I was absolutely on board. I was not not on board with it. Atomic Blonde, all Macy. Um, Atomic Blonde was great. I wouldn't say if those were my two two of my favorite films, but Fury Road definitely is. And uh, the reason why, so Fury Road is a couple of things. Um, Fury Road is, on the face of it, a ridiculous action movie full of bullet riddled car chases and like. A flame-throwing guitar flame dude dangling guitar. on a bungee rope in front so of a truck full of bongo, like, giant drums. Ma Mad Max Fury Road is very much a movie that you have to watch while clinging very hard onto the rule of cool. Because if you start asking, why is this like this, yes. it but, will fall apart. It's there but, because it's very cool. Two things. <laughs> yes. Two things. It, it's there. It has a massive rule of cool on the head of it. Yeah. But... 
if you actually take a step back and look at the scenery and the tiny amounts of dialogue yeah. <laughs> and everything that it chooses around its <laughs> world building, it's actually also saying a lot of very interesting things, mm-hmm. uh, very cool things. And it is a message of, you know, Max, the titular Max, is not the main character of this movie. The main character of this movie is a woman named Furiosa, who is a war chief um, and a warrior driver for a warlord called Immortan Joe. And at the beginning of the movie, she is setting out across the Fury Road to go get gasoline from Gasoline Town and bullets from the Bullet Farm. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I love the creativity that went into these names. It's like this nope. does not matter whatsoever. We well, are calling it's all it like gasoline. Uncreative town. <laughs> old men being creeps. Um including yeah. like what was it? The guy who's in charge of Guzzoline Town wanders around in like a suit jacket with nipple holes cut out. And like and, a, and like nipple clamps and like nipples. a chain between his and nipples. Like, yeah, it's the whole why? thing. It's a whole thing. <laughs> but why? Be, be, because cool, Macy. Because cool. But this is a post-apocalyptic world that has descended so far into anarchy that gasoline and water are kind of the most prized possessions. Um Children are born with birth defects. There's a lot of sickness. There's very little medical care. And it has completely fallen apart. And so you have this armoured convoy trying to get more water and gasoline, trying to trade. And you have kind of the implication that they're going out heavily armed because this convoy gets attacked all the time. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's kind of... And you get all of that. Nobody says any of this. That's what's really cool about this film. It shows you things and expects you to figure out why it's doing this. Oh, yeah. And, of course, Furiosa instead is kidnapping Immortan Joe's quote-unquote prize breeders. Gross. His five young women in their bikini wraps, uh, his wives, one of whom is very pregnant and one of whom is slightly pregnant, um, to save them. To take them to the green place, to take them to a better place, to build a life for themselves. And then shit goes down. It sure does go down. (laughs) And up and sideways. (laughs) In many places and in many Mm -hmm. directions at once. Kaboom. And in all kinds of speeds. Uh, Trigger warnings for quite a lot of gore in this film. Um, And like obviously implied sexual assault. Yes. Um, Trigger warnings for many things. It it may be worth looking up the warnings officially for the film somewhere first. Yeah. Uh, because it is a somewhat a violent lot. action movie. It's a lot. It is. It's a, um, it's a lot. Yeah. I have a hard time watching this film because of the cool thing that they did with the um, the shot alignment. Uh, I'm sure that when this film came out, like, everybody was reading essays about, like, the cool thing they did where, like, the focal point of each mm. shot is exactly the same so you can't look away from it. Mm. Um, and... So my ADHD kind of like hooks onto that, and like I I I I watched the whole movie just like with every muscle in my body tensed, and like being completely like hypnotized, not able to look away. It's rough. It's a good film, but like it's not a physically enjoyable film to watch. It's like the opposite of a Studio Ghibli movie, is what it is. I don't know. I, I feel like some, some of the the visual. Like richness and mm-hmm. you know attention to background detail and visual storytelling is very yeah. deeply like. Okay, that's true. That's true. It packs a lot of information to every single frame. Mm, I think Ghibli. Like, I'm just thinking about like the balance of visuals to dialogue. 
yeah. yes. in a Ghibli film is very similar to this film. Yes, because mm. it is very light on dialogue. Uh, there's a lot that's shown to you and shown with the music, with the scoring. Um, mm. There's this guard. I was ranting about this in Slack. You were saying something about Grieg. Yes. So there's this beautiful shot uh, where the, the Furiosa and her war rig break into a dust storm to try to lose all of their pursuers. And you just pull back and back and back. The camera pulls so far back. And you're in the middle of a dust, like cyclone with lightning coming from the sky and you might get caught up and like blown over and it's terrifying but suddenly the score which has been all you know rock guitar and hard drums for a good 15 minutes solid pulls back to brass and then pulls back to string and it starts going with the which is the theme from Asus Todd, which is the death of Asus in Pier Gint by Greek. And mm. it's a really unique sequence of notes that you're just like, it just ca- it just really caught my attention because it's very effectively weird. It's not, qu- it's minor key, but it's also a little bit off. Yeah. And I really like really that effective. we have Macy's ability to pick up on musical cues because I <laughs> never 100% noticed them. miss all of them. Same. <laughs> Same. I so it's lovely when Macy's like, they did this clever thing, and we're like, wow, amazing. Incredible. <laughs> <laughs> we'll take your word for it. You could be making this up. We wouldn't but know. Magic. Do you want to know where it happens again, where they pull that motif back into the front of the score? Because it appears a few more times in the back of the score. Yes, tell us. The front of the score, it appears one more time. And that is when Nux makes his sacrifice. Oh, oh nice. Oh, <clears throat> yeah. Because what it is saying in that moment in the storm, because before then you've been driving through a desert and yeah. you get it, deserts are bad. Like there's not a lot of life here. And then you go into this apocalyptic dust storm and the score starts saying, you should be mourning because the world is dead. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And that's what this Oof. movie says over and over again. The world is dead. Who killed the world? Who, yes. Like literally explicitly who killed the world. Mm. Yeah. And the idea of mourning. So I did not pick up on any musical stuff, but this watch through, I did make a connection that I had not made before mm-hmm. in my many watches of this, which I should do with this idea of, I think, let me think about how I'm going to say this, which is to do with the idea of ambivalence towards hope. Mm-hmm. So a couple of yes. dot points that you've put here, Macy, is number one, the quote from Immortan Joe near the beginning, which is, do yes. not my friends become addicted to water, which, which when is, it is uh, first presented to you is meant to be infuriating and a, an example of a warlord gathering all the vital resources for himself yes. and trying to convince people that the fact that they want it is a something shameful or sinful. Yes. Mm-hmm. But this is also a film in which somebody who is convinced there is a better, greener world out there Mm-hmm. Tries to take people to it and, spoilers for Mad Max Fury Road, spoilers discovers that this place Road. no longer exists or possibly didn't ever exist. That it was right. just a hope that she was given as a story. And yes. what they actually have to do is turn around and go back to the corrupt base that they first started out from mm. and change the system there. Yes. And so I was thinking about this in the context of this idea of becoming addicted to water. The idea, this hope of a water-rich green place is actually in this film something that is dangerous. Right. Like, it is not quite buying into the idea of water as an addiction, but it's saying that hope for something that doesn't exist anymore is not actually helpful. 
a dream mm. for something ephemeral without the will to take action towards it. Is yes. Right? So I wrote this like silly little essay question <laughs> in the notes because <laughs> my brain was just going ding, 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 ding. And I said, to no, what extent my... is the myth of the green place, the water slash hope, to which Furiosa has addicted them, discuss, which is the kind of horrible thing that you would inflict on somebody who had to write a paper, basically. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But so I, I will not it. ask you to write a paper, but that was something that my brain did this time when I was watching it that I hadn't made previously. Well, it's it's interesting and it's kind of tying back into what we were saying about economics with uh, mm-hmm. Trail of Lightning because resources are the foundation of economics. Mm-hmm. And uh, right at the beginning of the, this film, it says, like, first there were the uh, gasoline wars uh, and then there were the water wars. Yeah, um, the energy wars and then the... Yeah. the energy, and the energy wars in, in Trail of Lightning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Well, there's, there's a really cool difference here, which is that Furiosa and Max and the wives and the Vuvalini, who are her old, uh, Furiosa's old uh, originating people, people, make it to the edge of land and they make it to the salt plains. And I think that we are meant to understand that this is what used to be the ocean. Mm. Mm, that there isn't actually any water on to the be world. Mm. Because they say we can travel for 160, mile, 160 days on bikes, on motorbikes, and we yeah. will not get to the other side of the salt plains. Oh, shit. That's mm. probably the ocean. I started wondering, like, where did the water go? It should have gone somewhere. You can't just get rid of all that water. But don't question it. Rule of cool. Mm. It is saying that if they had found the green place and stayed there and kept it for themselves, would they have been in their own way as selfish as the people who are holding all the water? And they're saying that, look, no, you have to face the fact that the water is gone. And what you have to do is go back to your community and start trying to change it, even though it's going to be difficult. Yeah, you have to start rebuilding with what you have and discover how much you don't have. It's like and it is a very Australian <laughs> thing. This idea of being stranded away mm. from everybody else and away from a lot of things and having to make do with what you have. And it's obviously mm. partly a very colonial Australian thing to mm. say that, you know, here is this <clears throat> dry world full of dangers and terrors and everything else that you know and or hope for is on the other side of a vast ocean because you are surrounded by it at all times. And given that the Mad Max franchise is inherently Australian, yeah. and and I can say fairly confidently that to me this is a movie that is set in Australia, right? Uh, mm-hmm. in an Australia surrounded by salt plains rather than ocean, but still inherently isolated. I accidentally went and watched the first Mad Max movie, um, don't do Accidentally. that. Accidentally. No, it was, I, I was looking for it on, I think it was Netflix or somewhere. I was looking for Mad Max in case they had Fury Road and it just yeah. came up instead. So I hit, sure, why not? It's not a, it's not a good movie. But the first one of the franchise is much more suburban. Mm-hmm. There are roads and gardens and towns and houses and it's anarchy and there's no law and you are your own law and you drive around and kill whoever you want. But it's still the scaffolding of society exists and then we come to this point in the franchise when everything has burned away under the sun Um, Mm. and the fact i haven't seen the other ones but the fact that this has brought the franchise to a point of focusing on a nomadic people Mm. who are attempting to survive for me kind of highlights the extent to which it does erase the indigenous australian yeah it does 
Because where are they in this movie? Where are they? And they're the ones who had caretaken for the world and respected the land and knew what to do with it. Where where are they now? You know, and depressingly, have they have we managed to wipe them out? Or like, if you're going to say something about a land and the relationship with the world, it is quite glaring when you erase the indigenous people, which was what was so good about Trail of Lightning. Because right. it, yep. it said, okay, maybe we haven't been wiped out. Maybe we've been brought back to the forefront right. and reclaimed yes. our relationship with this land. Um, and as much as I love Mad Max, there's nothing in there about the potential Indigenous experience. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things it does at the beginning of the movie when it asks who killed the world. It very clearly is pointing at Immortan Joe. Oh, yeah. And, you know, it's like it was the, the rich white men. Specific, but, yeah, specifically rich mm, white men. Right. Yeah. But then you turn around and you start asking, hang on, maybe it's everyone who's in this tower. Yeah. Mm. Maybe it's yeah. not just the one who's profiting from it. You don't have to profit from something to be complicit in it. No, and, and certainly given the time frame of it, Morton Joe is just another person who likes power, who has stepped mm. into a chaotic system and sees the power mm. that is there to be seized. He's not, he's not the one who, d- who did most of the destruction himself. He's just a symbol of it. Yes. Yeah. But, well, perhaps the depressing. next temple <laughs> is a little bit more jolly. A little bit more jolly. Would followed... we call it jolly? I don't know it if we can call it jolly. We can say it. It's quietly optimistic. It is. Quietly optimistic. View. Yeah, I would say hopeful. Jolly and hopeful are two different things in my book. <laughs> um... Maybe less so in, in the British lexicon. I don't know what jolly means to a British person, maybe. I, I mean, I guess my thought there is that in the next tentpole, the two of them have each other and will continue to have each yes. other and take joy from that. Yes, that's true. That's true. So the next tentpole, dear, uh, darling listeners, is Mobius by Aurora Nova, which is a Good Omens fanfic. Uh, and it was Macy's brilliant idea to look for a, a post-apocalyptic uh, fanfic for Good Omens. Uh, and because we were like, what fanfic has done this? What fanfic would engage with this? What fandom would engage with this in an interesting <laughs> way? And Macy said, ooh, Alex, go find a Good Omens one. And I said, Alex it, gosh. Alex is our dedicated Good Omens snack. I am. Yes. I am. Alex uh, is our Crowley. So I found, I thank you. Uh, <laughs> so I found Mobius by Aurora Nova, um, which I think is probably one, of, also one of the shortest tentpoles that we've ever uh, tentpoled because it was yeah. a like two thousand words. Yep. Uh, and it's about uh, Crowley and Aziraphale kind of realizing that um, a a new dark age is coming, and that humanity is kind of bringing this on themselves and. How do we prepare when we have seen this before and here it is coming around again? Um, what do what is important to keep? This is going back to what is value and what is valued again. Mm-hmm. Um, because in like uh, Crowley Naziraphale's answer to that question is, of course, books knowledge. And, and knowledge. Yeah, knowledge. Uh, how do we protect this knowledge, especially considering that no one else is going to have the privilege to value knowledge for a while because they will be so busy surviving that books will not be carefully kept. Uh, They will be allowed to rot and molder. Uh, So they are setting up uh, libraries all throughout the world with security systems that will sort of decay over time so that in um, a few centuries or a thousand years, humans will be able to find them again and to have these these books and to regain all this knowledge. Um, and it is very, very 
kind of sad, but also hopeful because history is cyclical. Mm. And they have lived through this before and humanity has lived through this before and they will live through this again probably even though it will be hard and mm. bad for a while okay, i was gonna say there's a few aspects of this one that i really appreciated because they could only exist in a fanfic mm. um and number one was the fact that it is basically doing two fanfic types at once it is doing kind of an au in that it is taking some canon details like aziraphale rescues books that's what he does Mm -hmm. That's his thing. He rescues books. Crowley helps him rescue books. That's a foundational event in canon. And it says, okay, that's a thing. What can we do with that? But it also is a canon that is such that you can actually call it just a sequel or a future fic, <laughs> even though it is so far in the future because you have immortal characters. So that's a very fanfic-y thing. And I also really yeah. like the fact that all through this fic, they never use, they only use the word apocalypse with a capital A, to talk about the apocalypse the that wasn't one. that occurs mm -hmm, yeah. in Good Omen's canon, this to them does not involve any deliberate attempt to end the world, which is what the apocalypse was. This is just something in a cycle that has happened before and hopefully won't happen again, but may may well. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's a rise of a dark age. It's not framed to them as an apocalypse because this is a question that I put further on, but I think fits fits well here. What is an apocalypse? Well, an apocalypse is the end of the world. What is a world? Yes. And so what we have from Rebecca Rowanhorse earlier is that uh, the coming of Columbus and the coming of colonial Europeans to the North Americas was the end of a world. <laughs> for the native, for the indigenous folks. And that is an entirely valid perspective. From Aziraphale and Crowley's perspective, um, even the end of modern society is not the end of a world. Because to them, a world is bigger than that. Because they aren't quite inside it in the same way that we are. Right. They have a much more broad scale perspective because they have lived through it. Because they're immortal, they're able to see the big picture and stand back and know how resilient society is it almost reminded me a little bit of the mass effect games and particularly the ending of mass effect 3 where you find out that the game you've been playing to prevent this uh, extinction level event across the entirety of the universe has happened before multiple mm -hmm. times and occurs on a cycle mm -hmm. and you get to choose whether to reset the cycle or kill it off mm -hmm. and it's super cool uh, yeah yeah. Well, I think, yeah, in this particular genre, there's a big spectrum between treating this as something that will be recovered from, like just one point in a cycle, or whether there has actually been an irreversible entropic slide, which mm. I think Mad Max Fury Road falls way more down that end of the spectrum, yes. saying something has happened that will not be reversed. We cannot actually rebuild. We can only make do and make the best possible world and community with what is left to us. But things have been lost that cannot be regained. And that's the mm. point of the Salt Flats. Right, yeah. Right, 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 right. Yeah, and I think, like, paralleling it with Mad Max Fury Road, like, with the with the who killed the world line in Mad Max Fury Road, um, it's, like, I was contrasting that directly with the line from this fanfic. They could have prevented the worst of this, and they didn't. Mm. Um, mm. It's very much like someone chose this, or, like, we all kind of collectively chose this. Mm. We're all But complicit. at the same time, all of these tentpoles, and I think this genre, no matter where they are on that particular spectrum, their focus is always on the small acts. Yes. Like, the, the very hope punk 
idea that when you have lost something or gone undergone such a fundamental shift, the best thing you can do is whatever is in front of you. Like, mm-hmm. who can you help? What can you preserve? What can mm-hmm. you rebuild? What is What can you do for the people around you? Yeah. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. and it's, you know, it's the people standing in front of the, the pipeline um, in Dhaka and saying, you know, this one thing we will not let you dig up and put oil through this sacred land. Um, mm. And we can't preserve all the books, but we can preserve this. Yeah. Right. It may be interesting, this actually. Um, the book uh, Deal with the Devil by Kit Roker, which is uh, a post-apocalyptic romance novel, uh, is also about librarians. Like the key uh, three um, female characters in this particular trilogy are what they call mercenary librarians, but they are in a post-apocalyptic world and their job is to hold on to knowledge and to lend it out and share it out and try and protect it and preserve it well and then you get back to meg ellison's the book of the unnamed midwife which is again framed as a diary and a book in part about her experiences but also about the medical knowledge that she has about Mm. how to prevent birth when birth is a dangerous thing right yeah Um, and so i don't know it's very weird it's very weird reading about um the, the history of books and how knowledge is treated and looking back at the amount, the sheer amount of knowledge that the Islamic societies in the Middle Ages and the, uh, in the Mediterranean had that Western society considered to not exist because it wasn't the right sort of people who discovered it? Yeah. Question mark. And we're hmm. like up in Edinburgh cutting open corpses and the Ottomans were like, guys? Guys, are you all right? Well, because I mean, <laughs> we can I, tell you how to do a cesarean section if you want, or you could yeah, keep but digging I mean, up a, corpses. What a society is is what it value, what, what it would want to preserve. Like you've got yeah. the idea of seed banks, the idea of tech banks, yeah. But but it's not even just that. It's it's pieces of knowledge that were definitely valued in those societies that were rejected purely because they came from a set of people who were considered to know nothing. Yep. And I'm just like, uh, humans. humans. Humans make me angry sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> but we are short on time, and I am going to forcibly, um, unlike the ship stuck in the Suez Canal, extract us from this stuckness and get us Wonderful. moving again. Wonderful. make. I'm not going to make a nodding joke. Please continue. No, I'm sitting right here until Alex makes the nodding joke. No, absolutely. I, I feel like just, just mentioning the word in this context. I just is said it. enough to yep. allow the joke to take place in everyone's <laughs> Consider anyway, it done. Let's move on. Anyway, we haven't we haven't earned our NC seventeen rating in a while, have we? It's uh, true. <clears throat> so here's a thing that I was pondering, particularly while watching Mad Max Fury Road. Um, hmm which was a lot of apocalypses are framed like a James Bond movie. They're framed with a really strict line between then and now. I was thinking of the day after tomorrow here, Mm. um, where even when it's a climate change apocalypse, which as we know, as we are living in one, Mm -hmm. takes a while to fucking happen. Mm-hmm. Um, when you are writing a story or doing a doing a TV show or doing a movie about an apocalypse, you want a line that says, this is when it broke. You want something dramatic. You need to make it a spectacle. So how do you turn a centuries-long shift into a spectacle? You destroy New York. 
you destroy just... New York. Yes. <laughs> I mean, from the from the very cynical Hollywood point of view, that tends to be when uh, people will acknowledge that something has happened. <laughs> who who was it? There was somebody. Was it Malka Older who wrote a non-fiction fiction thing in the New Yorker or something about people searching the ruins of drowned New York. And it was like an interview with taxi drivers, except that all of the oh, people it was interviewing were like people going in boats into the drowned ruins of New York, scavenging for things after the apocalypse. And it was just written as this like human interest article. And it was amazing. That's fabulous. That's cool. But you're Dying right. Scribes. <laughs> There's this implication that enough people have to agree that the world has ended for the world to end. Like, it's not just like one summer in Australia, an entire town burns down for that town. Right. That was the world ending. Their way of life has ended. And I'm thinking like the big snowstorms and ice storms in the day after tomorrow, which we love to mock because what the fuck? That's not how anything works. No, but it's very much saying, okay, here's the weekend in which all the shit is going to go down. It's a pretty clear and inescapable line. Yeah. To say the apocalypse is here now. This is it. it is happening. It reminds me of one of my favourite metaphors for why it got fucking cold in Texas this year. Uh, somebody described the Gulf Stream as the failing saggy elastic on the bra that was meant to hold the Arctic weather system in place. And now that's just spilling out. That, <laughs> that's a visual low. image. That sure is an image. I enjoy that. <laughs> And I'm just like, yeah, definitely not an apocalypse hmm. when the Northwest Channel is open. Um, but it's true. I mean, and I think I, you, your last dot point talks about this, Macy, but the idea that if you are creating a story right. that you are wanting to engage people in, you're not just saying like, oh, well, you know, if we continue down this road, the climate apocalypse is going to come because it is. Right. But you're saying, how can I create a story that people will enjoy watching? You know what's mm-hmm. cool? Lightning storms are cool. Enormous volcanic eruptions are cool. You know, there's this sense that it has to be with a bang. Right. And there's one of my favourite fanfics of all times that I will one day get you two to read. I know that I will not. Um, Embers by Vathara, which is, what, Mm -hmm. 700,000 words long. And the ending sequence involves the heroes trying to save the world, um, trying to stop the bad guy, placate the spirits so that the super volcano that they're standing on will not explode and cause a climate apocalypse for the entire world. And it is a very effective, if there is a single thing you can do to prevent a climate apocalypse, that's motivating. (laughs) Well, I'm thinking about Mary Robinette Cowell's Calculating Stars, which has a single moment in which the climate apocalypse gets kicked off. And it's like, after that, it's just consequences and persuading idiot politicians that the consequences are real. Mm. Uh, Sigh. And we would be remiss if I did not also mention... Let's try the ending again, writ continentally. Oh, N.K. Jemison. Which is an opening line from the fifth season, which I will claim as a climate apocalypse novel. It is. It is. I would agree. Yeah. Um, Because it's the climate apocalypse, again, happening cyclically. Like, that's the fifth, that's what Mm -hmm. the fifth Mm -hmm. season is, is like, oh, it's apocalypse Mm. season again. Anyway. we And and the line, I think the the line in that one would be the loss of the moon. Yeah. Yeah. Way back in time. Well, I think that the line in this specific instance, again, it's the what is an apocalypse to Aziraphale and Crowley versus what is an apocalypse to the idiots living in London. Yeah. Um, Mm. It's... Um, the apocalypse for that entire world was the death of the moon. The apocalypse right now for the characters is in when one dude cracks the planet open and lets the magma out. Yeah. yeah. 
<laughs> which is not advised. Probably don't do that. Mm. So we, since we are running short on time, what are a couple other notable uh, climate post-apocalyptic fictions and possibly non-fictions? Well, if you would like the experience of Mad Max Fury Road in book form, then I recommend Lotus Blue by Kat Sparks, who is an Australian ah. writer, and is very obviously borrowing themes and ideas from Mad Max, and it is about a convoy-based society and people having adventures in a desert full of dangers on enormous vessels, mm. uh, but with much more sort of hum- in the way of focus on characters and character interactions and having a point-of-view character who has her own shit going on. Uh, I mean, the, the characters in Mad Max Fury Road are there as symbols, more or less. Like, you care about them. But again, there's not that much dialogue. The visuals are what's important. Whereas this takes the visuals, backgrounds them, and then brings characters to the forefront. And it is very, very deliberately set in Australia. Mm. And there are lots of little, like, in-jokes and references Mm. that you would notice if you are Australian reading the book. Yeah. So I recommend that. It was good fun. Not to be a horrible goose, but is Mortal Engines a post-apocalyptic Mad Max franchise? The ones with the giant cities on wheels. No, oh. I can't remember enough about the world building <laughs> to uh, recall I think why the cities are moving around. <laughs> <laughs> they just are. That's just how they live. I think now. that's very rule of there cool. Was, yeah, yeah, there was something about it is kind of it is kind of Mad Max Fury Road now that I think about it. Because mm. like you have those like giant things on wheels and there was all that about urban evolution or whatever it was. <laughs> uh, good shit. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, I'll let you get back to actual so, notable climate post-apocalypse. Uh, the, the one that I would recommend is The Sea and Summer by George Turner, which won the Arthur C. Clarke Award in 1988. Uh, and it is about uh, a woman, I believe. It's been a long time since I read this book. Uh, but I remember that very vividly that it was about this city after the after climate change has happened and the uh, ice caps have melted and the sea level has uh, vastly risen uh so the sea and summer um and it's really interesting to look at a perspective from gosh more than 30 years ago uh about like how climate how those uh forward-looking science fiction people would have viewed it back then versus how we are looking at it now um and for <laughs> For nonfiction, I would also recommend the podcast The Fall of Civilizations, which very much, uh, it's on YouTube and it very, very much proves the point that a lot of these apocalypses happen kind of in slow motion over years or decades. Well, specifically that one is a little bit less climate focused and more general falls of civilizations, but it's very, very good. Some of them are climate. A lot of them are are related to climate change in, in some, in some way, at least like climate change kind of like kicked off the reasons for other things to eventually happen. Yeah. Yep. And my one of my agent siblings actually just had a book come out yesterday, Ooh. Uh, March 25th, called How We Get to Carbon Zero, which is one of Wired magazine's things. So Bianca Nogredi uh, has a nonfiction book. She's a science writer as well. Uh, so maybe check that out. But I did also want to talk a little bit, and I will be brief because we are short of time. Yes. Um I think that climate apocalypse is, to a degree, considered a default assumption for a lot of near-future sci-fi. Mm. Yes. So I'm thinking particularly about The Expanse and that thing where you zoom in on Navasarala in the first time you see the UN in New York and you see the walls holding back the sea. Mm. Hmm. Right. And even like Space Sweepers, which we just did. Yes. Yeah. 
space sweepers and the the smoke in the air uh, or you see the Mar- Kim Stanley Robinson's Mars trilogy kind of has this in the background that this earth is just kind of falling to pieces mm. and I think that it is telling that many of our imaginative minds who are thinking of what they think the future will look like think this is inevitable but I think that that's probably all the serious stuff we have time for. Do you, I think we have enough time for you to give us a very God brief, damn it. fun fact. <laughs> just a Macy, little, tiny little just corner. Just a tiny little As corner. Macy put this dot point, Macy's Fun Facts Bronze Age Mediterranean Corner. And I just think <laughs> it's been a long, long time since we've had a Fun Facts Macy Corner. Listen. Uh, okay, so in 1177 BC, roughly thereabouts, yes. There was this big party in the Mediterranean that everybody came to and had a lot of fun. <laughs> okay. Uh, no, okay. But seriously. Um, there was so a volcano. There was, a lot, there was, well, right. But don't spoil my punchline, Alexander. Sorry. <laughs> but no, um, it was really interesting. So there's a lot of different, there was a very complicated network civilization in the Bronze Age Mediterranean mm. that traded around a lot of goods. Um, they were complex enough that they were building cruise ships. It was great. It was a good time for everyone. But a lot of them, a lot of these societies all failed at roughly the same time for roughly the same reason. And that reason was, quote unquote, the invasion of the Sea Peoples. Yes. Nobody knows who the Sea Peoples were. Um, but if they look back into the historical record and try to look at uh, like ash levels and crop reports and all sorts of other things that didn't get written down it looks rather likely that they were refugees from climate change Mm. right that these were people fleeing the results of a volcanic eruption that ashed over their sky and failed all of their crops over the course of a decade or so and they were running running away from where they could not find food to the few places that had food left maybe and trying to take it and steal it And there were just so many of them that they overwhelmed even the most prepared of other countries. And I want to say Egypt made it it through, but, you know, Troy did not. Mm. Um, There was... Atlantis was possibly the island where that volcano blew up. Yeah. Like... Yeah. So this is not theoretical. Um, Climate apocalypses have happened to this planet in the past. And climate change refugees are something that exists now. Yeah. Yes. But to end us on a slightly less depressing note, humanity is still here. And I think that's pretty cool of us. That is pretty cool of us. I'm in favor of that. Also, read 1177 BC. Yes. It's a good book about And ships. clearly, you know, it will just cheer you right cheer up. Cheer right up. Wow. Man, what a... What a <laughs> we it will give, okay, okay. Fair. It will give all of our darling listeners very important context for their next Yuletide fanfic about Ear Nazir, the corrupt bronze trader. Oh, wonderful. Yes, please. Oh, yes, please. All right, yes, I'll please. We started out. We started out being like so weird and manic and like gremlins, and we have ended on this like very serious note. So, uh, I mean, to be fair, we were discussing the end of the world for an we hour. We truly were. <laughs> Hello everybody, thanks for joining us for this episode of Be the Serpent, a podcast of extremely, extremely deep literary merit. 
As your resident Australian servant who did, yes, establish myself quite early as the kind of person who would go off on a monologue about bushfires, I'm really interested to see where the genre of cli-fi takes us, really, as we move depressingly into our own real-life climate apocalypse in progress. I think it's hard to know if we'll be looking to fiction and science fiction and fantasy in particular for answers and unflinching warning about what's to come, or if there'll be a swing away from it in fiction as we try to escape our unfolding reality. There is a tipping point of pessimism, I think. Do we hold fast and plan for renewal, or do we pour all of our resources into finding a new home, and who makes that call? Anyway, I was going to say on a less depressing note, but I suppose it depends on what you're looking for. For our next episode, two weeks hence, on May 5th, we are exploring one of my favourite genres, and one that's having a real renaissance in publishing at the moment, gothics. Creepy mansions, plucky ingenues, and dark secrets, oh my. So, if you've got any friends who might be into that, then give them a heads up. One of our tentpoles is the film Crimson Peak, if you'd like to drench yourself in atmosphere, tropes, and blood in preparation. In the meantime, questions? Comments? Breathless adulations? As ever, you can get in touch with us at serpentcast at gmail.com, and we're at serpentcast on Twitter and Tumblr. And if you enjoy the podcast and would like to support us further, you can also find our Patreon at patreon.com slash serpentcast. Or consider leaving us a rating and a review on iTunes so we can continue to reach new listeners. And by the way, you've got the resilience of a cockroach, which is, as we all know, a great compliment. <laughs>